Reformation Fellowship provides support and fellowship to all who would stand for the Reformation of Christ's Church worldwide. We long to see the church revitalized by the gospel and seek to encourage all who share that vision. We gather together for gospel-hearted fellowship around gospel-minded theology. We are a ministry of union. Hello and welcome back to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. I am your host, Justin Schell. We're so glad that you've joined us wherever you are in the world. I want to make you aware of our website, reffellowship.org, R-E-F-fellowship.org. That's where you can find out more about what we are all about here at the Reformation Fellowship, and we can keep you updated on news about events, resources, the gatherings, etc. We hope your time with us strengthens your hand as you seek to know Christ and make him known to those around you. And we've got a great episode ready for you today as we dig into the topic of theological retrieval. I'm joined by Dan Hames, lecturer in systematic and historical theology at Union School of Theology, and also serving as the associate director for Union. Dan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Justin. Great to be here. Yes, yes. I'm really looking forward to talking about theological retrieval with you. But before we jump into the topic, it sounds like you wear a couple of hats for Union. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I um, I have the privilege of, of teaching in the school, which means um, yep, lecturing and supervising students, particularly in systematic theology and uh, church history, historical theology. Uh, but then, as you say, also I'm involved a bit in, in the leadership and direction of, of the ministry, which yeah, means working on various projects with our, our faculty, but also our staff, you know, people like you around the world, just finding ways we can support and bless the church and strengthen her mission. That's, that's really what we're about. And I, mm-hmm. I get to be part of um, you know, a lot of that across the whole of Union, which is a real privilege. Awesome. So you get to kind of see the ministry from a lot of different angles. Uh, you have a unique vantage point, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. It's uh, it's a blessing. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Well, let's um let's jump into our topic. I say theological retrieval, and even as someone who knows that's what we've we've been planning to talk about, it it wouldn't have been too far too far in the past, um, in which I wouldn't know what theological retrieval was. So um, for those who, for whom this may be a new topic, could you kind of lay the groundwork for us? What is theological retrieval? Yeah, in some ways, this is this, this a very simple thing to define. Um, it, it's going back to the theologians of the past to get help as we do our theology today. Mm. In some ways, it's as simple as that. Um, but I think a, a part of it is also to press into the practical outworking of that theology. So asking, you know, in the challenges and the questions of our age and our circumstances, which might seem quite unique to us, is there anyway, is there godly wisdom and perspective and correction to be found in the past? And the answer is always yes. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's learning from, um, you know, brilliant perceptive thinking and pastoring. And sometimes it's learning from past mistakes and missed opportunities opportunities and, and so on but it's, it's always useful 
so that's that's really the, the really basic definition mm. so in a sense it's it's having a conversation with um past christians past christian thinkers leaders uh and 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 learning from them exactly in, in many ways um this is a is a is a church thing um in the way that we we might sit around today with with friends or sit with a book of a scholar and they work out our theological questions in the context of the church and the communion of saints we're kind of doing that in theological retrieval with friends from the past Mm. so what's um what would you say has prompted recent interest within the church to go back to the work of earlier generations of believers is this um, is is this new? Do, do have previous generations done this as well? And and if so, kind of why do we do this? And and why do you think now we are we're seeing more of an interest in that? Yeah, I, I think in, in one sense the church has always been doing this. So in some ways, it's not really a recent thing. <clears throat> um, our theology, our worship, that our way of thinking about discipleship whether we're aware of it or not, has always been shaped and guided by thinkers from the past. Um, and it may be that we're aware of that um, to different degrees. So some, some of us will be in historic denominations where we, we know that we're using prayers that are mm. hundreds of years old or sometimes thousands of years old, or mm. we say creeds on a Sunday that were written in the earliest days of the church. And we have church calendars, which you know, have specific days included in them to thank God for saints who've gone before. So I think for some of us, it's sort of just in the, in the blood, um, mm. maybe less so f- for others. Um, but I think at the same time, um, there has been a, a bit of a d- discernible movement or trend in the theological world, maybe in the last 10 years or so, to be self-consciously um, resourcing theology now with the theology of the past. And maybe that's even where the term theological retrieval has come from um we've we've seen yeah in the last 10 years or or just a bit more um specific books on how to retrieve the thought of certain thinkers and especially how to apply it today Um, books on the practice of theological retrieval the why of it of that and the how of it Um, so i think i think it has become a subject of discussion in the evangelical world um a bit more recently um even though in some ways we've been doing it for a while um i wonder if behind it behind that a little bit is the fact that as evangelicals we we maybe have a reputation of being quite aware of some parts of our heritage but not others so we we might be quite quite good on you know looking back to the reformation of 500 years ago we we might be quite good at talking about the likes of martin luther and john calvin and then the people that followed like the, the Puritans or the Wesleys and Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and so on. Um, but we have a reputation and it might be right that we're, we're, we tend to be a bit more foggy on what came before that. Mm. So I, I think maybe if there's something a bit new about this discussion about theological retrieval, it may be that it, it trends in the, in the, the direction of trying to rediscover um, the theologians of the medieval t- era and uh, patristic times, the early church writers, um, you know, particularly those those times we're maybe a little bit less familiar with and aware of. 
Yeah, yeah. Now you, you brought up the patristics and here we are in the 21st century. And when I think of say second century France or fourth century North Africa, that seems like a long, long time ago and, and far, far away places. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of us that are listening and maybe we're skeptical, how, how could it be that modern people in the age of the internet could benefit from ancient thinkers, the, the fathers of the church? How would you, how would you respond to that? Yeah, what a question. I think, um, I think it's, it's worth saying um, straight away to do this, it can, it can really feel like a trip into another world. Um, it can be a, a kind of disorienting thing to do. Um, you know, as we read theologians of the past, they're often mentioning names of people and um, referencing, um, you know, controversies and events that to us are completely unknown. And it, it would be tempting to think, what's the point of this? It, seem, it all does seem quite um, mm. irrelevant or unfamiliar. Um, but I, I think maybe the first thing we could say that why this is worth doing is to some degree, this is an effort to understand ourselves and to know where we have come from. Um, because the, the things that we do in church on a Sunday morning, the, the language and words that we instinctively reach for when we pray and um, the, the framework of sharing the gospel with someone that we have in our minds, all of that has come from somewhere. And um, it's maybe tempting to think, surely it's just from the pages of scripture, you know, it's just just the Bible. Um, but, you know, how we read scripture has um, has its roots in what um, in what has gone before us, how we put teaching of scripture into practice has its roots in what's gone before us. And it it's not just to who's taught us in our own lifetimes, but um, it goes back, you know, through great movements of the history of the church and um, great men and women trying to work out um, what is the life of the church supposed to be like and how do we respond to controversial teaching about theological matters and all, all of those kind of things so wh- wh- whether we know it or not um, what we're delving into is our history and it's mm. part of us and it actually already shapes us in some way or another um, I, I think maybe um the best argument for this is quite well known, a little essay by C.S. Lewis. Um, and it's his introduction to a, a short book by Athanasius, one of the early church theologians. And um, in this little essay, C.S. Lewis is, is just trying to answer exactly this question. Why, why, why should I read a book from, you know, an Egyptian theologian sometime in the 320s when mm-hmm. you know, I live now where I am? And his answer is, is really, it's really helpful answer. It's that every age, every, every time has its own outlook and we will see certain things very clearly, but we'll also have particular mistakes and blind spots in how we see the world. And we might look, we might look back at the people of the past and see them thinking, you know, thinking of the earth as flat or, you know, trying to heal people's illness with leeches and that kind of thing. And we think, man, how far off the mark could you be? Um, It'd be very easy for us to forget um, that it may be some of the things that seem to us today to be um, the most obvious and self-evident that might be proved to be completely foolish and misguided in just a few hundred years from now. Um, And so Lewis is basically saying, 
um, the the way to help us see the the characteristic mistakes of our own age um, to get to a perspective on the problems that we have that we can't see for ourselves the answer to that he says is it's to turn to old books um, to find mm. in old books a different set of lenses to look at the world with a different set of strengths and weaknesses to our own and that that's a really good and healthy thing yeah. and his picture for that is it's the, the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds um, from from these old books mm. so uh, that, I think that's a really good little argument um, for this from, C- from C.S. Lewis. And in some ways, the greater the distance between us and the person we're reading and interacting with, the greater the potential for correction and insight. And if you like, for that wind to, to blow stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's dig into this a little bit then. Let's, um, I, I know you've been doing some work around uh, Cyril of Alexandria how might you know let, let's perhaps use him as a case study how might he speak to the issues the church is facing today yeah um you may have to stop me from just getting carried away here justin <laughs> but I'll, I'll try and be brief um cyril was um a brilliant fifth century bishop in, in alexandria in egypt he was a, a bible commentator a theologian and teacher and um I think it's worth saying there's stacks to learn from his commentaries, um, commentaries on the Pentateuch and Isaiah, John's Gospel. There's actually just been a recently rediscovered commentary of Cyril's on Hebrews. Mm. And uh, it's not in English yet. And I'm just, you know, I'm desperate to see that. Um, um, Mostly, though, um, Cyril's known for a kind of theological church leadership in response to some false teaching and false teaching of uh, another bishop called Nestorius. And uh, Nestorius was essentially teaching that in Jesus, there were two sons um, side by side in him, the son of God and the son of Mary, that they're two separate sons, Mm. the divine one and the human one. And Nestorius would go back through the gospels and pick out which of these two sons was doing what and when. Um, So the son of God would be the one walking on water or raising Lazarus from the tomb but it would be the son of Mary, the human son, who was tired after a journey, uh, who suffered on the cross. So Nestorius was teaching that and Cyril wanted to correct him. And he, Cyril basically said, you can't divide the person of Christ in this way. Yes, there are two natures here. There is an eternal divine person who has taken to himself a, a brand new human nature and human flesh but it is only one person. There's only one son here. And the person is God, the son, the second person of the Trinity. Mm. And when Cyril's saying that it's important, he's not just saying, I want to be precise about what I say. Um, his motivation is that he can see with Nestorius's view, um, human salvation is under threat. Um, Cyril's seeing if, if, if it isn't God the Son who is born of Mary, there's not the second person of the Trinity who's, who's born and laid in the manger. If it's not God the Son on the cross, but some other son, even one who's kind of in some sort of partnership with God the Son, even if there's some kind of conjunction between them, 
Mm. But but if it's not God the Son Himself, then our salvation is doomed. Right. It's not God who's come and acted for us. Yeah. Um, so Cyril wanted to say it has to be God Himself who's come down as one of us to save us. Um, otherwise, you know, if you like, God is only God has only dealt with us with gloves on. He's kind of dealt with us with a buffer between us. Mm. Um, and the man Jesus becomes a, a separate entity here um, for Nestorius, I think, especially a kind of supercharged example rather than the divine saviour. Mm. And uh, the insight here really is one that um, has to keep coming to the church again and again, over and over. Is our salvation achieved entirely by God in his mercy as he personally steps in to our sin and our darkness or are we actually keeping a bit back for ourselves to do mm. um, that's something we all battle with each day and it's something that theologians of church history have dealt with continually the whole time that's a question that keeps coming back mm. Nestorius has that a kind of glass wall between God the Son, the Son of God, and the Son of Mary. He, it's almost as if he can't get God and man in the same room. Humanity and divinity couldn't truly go together. Mm. Um, and so his view of salvation, his view of how salvation is played out and experienced in the Christian life, um, it was largely about trying to be like Jesus the man, to, to imitate him and follow him in terms of moral goodness and so on. Yeah. Um, well, Cyril says, if salvation is in Jesus, true union of God and man, really God and man in one person, then salvation worked out in our experience also looks like God and man in union and communion and intimacy and, and fellowship with God. And that, that's a perspective we, we need refreshing in constantly, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, it, it makes me think of recent conversations with uh, with some brothers and sisters here uh, as we talk about just the goodness of God. And I can't count. I don't have enough fingers and toes to count the number of times some one of us has said in one way or another, is God really that good? Is mm. does he really? Um, uh, is he really for us as much as the word says he is? Is he really that kind and gracious to us? It's almost, um, you see Nestorius uh, centuries ago saying God can't really be that good. He's not actually going to come and, and be with us. Not really. He's, he's got to have this, this other man, the son of Mary, um, because God can't be that good, can he? Um, yeah. Mm. The, um, the, the, the church in the time of Cyril would use in their liturgy, in the in the, their worship, they would use little phrases and words which deliberately were kind of provocative and made you deal with that kind of collision of, of God with humanity. Um, they'd, they'd speak about um, God wrapped in swaddling bands lying in the manger. It feels like feels like two things you shouldn't put together, and yet in Christ God has done that. Yeah. Um, they'd even they'd even use the language of um, of calling Mary the mother of God, 
and uh, <clears throat> we might we might have some objections to maybe what that does to the status of Mary. Right. Um, but the 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 uh, the intention behind that phrase was to say this baby that Mary has brought into the world and given birth to it is God. It is it is God the Son Himself who has has come to us yeah. um, to be with us where we are to give Himself for us. Mm. Um, so. I've, in, in that way, the church was incorporating that stuff into their into their worship. So th- these were things you you learned to embrace the collision. What about um, other areas or issues in society today, say in Western culture? How might, as we look at culture around us, how might we benefit from interacting with the the thought or work of of other church fathers or perhaps medieval theologians? Yeah. Um, I think again, and there's, there's so many things to say. We could spend hours pondering this. Um, I think maybe just to open up one one can of worms and then put the lid back on is um, is to say um, there's maybe in Western culture today a real itch around the question of identity and all the debates we're having at the moment around gender and sexuality and race and self identification and so on. Mm. I think it is true that older theologians have a lot of wisdom that could help us navigate some of this, not necessarily to give us the answers outright, but to help us think. Um, Huge part of this whole question that we're dealing with um, in terms of identity is understanding what is it to be a self? You know, what is, what is a person? What is personhood? Mm. Who and what am I? And how, how, how do I understand myself and how I, relate relate to others around me especially those who aren't like me in some ways and yeah i think there are no quick easy answers i don't think you could say hey if you read this book from you know the 12th century we've sorted it it's not it's not like that um but often those who've gone before us in the church were asking similar questions mm-hmm. uh, particularly about the nature of personhood and humanity um and i think what's so useful is often their answers aren't very much the same as ours and um they're they're worth hearing and digesting i think it's 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 not easy um but it's worth the engagement and to have that that clean sea breeze come through Mm. i I wonder if the other thing that just particularly comes to mind um in this and thinking about society is um the the sort of question of, of secularism and the world as a, a, a seemingly secular place. Um, I think what strikes me with the older theologians is their attitude towards, um, if I can say it like this, what reality fundamentally is. Mm. Um, f- for these ancient thinkers, especially, God isn't just uh, part of my personal intellectual furniture but God is real and this is Jesus Christ's world. And so when they think about the reality of being here in this world and being alive and being me, they're really serious about saying all of that is shaped and defined first and foremost by Jesus Christ. And I'm not, I'm not understanding myself first in a kind of neutral secular way. And then I'm importing Jesus and some Christian stuff into it. Um, it seems they've got a view of everything where 
all of reality has meaning and significance in a theological way, even in a Christological way. Nothing, nothing in the world is incidental or neutral to them. Um, and so I, I take from that a challenge. I, I cannot and should not live as though I were basically an atheist who occasionally prays. Right. Um, I'm, in, I'm in the world my father made and it is held together by my saviour, Jesus. And that, that should change how I, I look at everything. It's beginning to, I think there's a long way to go for me. Um, but it's beginning to shape reality in a, a, a truly Christian way. Mm. Dan, do you see for the church today, um, are there issues uh, within the people of God? Are there, is, there, is there ancient medicine available for what ails God's people today, uh, whether it's our theology or worship or maybe practice yeah i think um i think it's good to say um the medicine is always going to be the gospel and the word of god um mm. so we don't go to these sources as infallible um, doctors and uh, sort of perfect cures for what what we're dealing with um, but they they may administer the medicine of the gospel in ways we're not quite seeing um, or that we have an experience for ourselves. And I think that's where that, that's that's worth being quite quite clear about that. Um, that said, I think there's there is huge help <clears throat> in the past. Um, I, I guess one thing that's worth worth mentioning is that especially in the the early church period and in the medieval era, um, they were one of the one of the big things that was going on was they were trying to work out the relationship between Christian theology and the ancient philosophical authorities who really loomed large then, especially Plato and Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And they were having to ask the question, can, can this be a positive relationship or is it going to be basically a negative thing for Christianity? Um, do we do we let those thinkers and that those schools of thought have some part to play in how we do theology or, or not? Um, you know, how might the concepts and language of, of philosophy, Greek philosophy be useful to the gospel or how might they obscure it? How complex is that relationship? And I would say that that's a, con- a continual uh, question and issue as we read some of these, particularly the older um, writers and, Sometimes their answers are, are better and clearer than others. Um, but I wonder if even, even just that little grapple, that, that kind of big, honest question um, helps us as we're doing a lot of the same sort of thing in the church today. Um, you know, ha- asking how do various academic and intellectual streams of thought and traditions affect us? Can they be useful to us in articulating the gospel today or do, or, or or do we run the risk of undermining the gospel by adopting them? So uh, examples that spring to mind would be, you know, c- can the church um, learn from import secular psychology stuff? You know, should, should you send off your church leadership t- team to do a Myers-Briggs test? Is that helpful or, or is it pointless? Um, or, or can we learn from management and leadership theory coming from the business world? A hot potato would be, can we learn from the field of, social science today when we think mm. about our exercise of social action and mercy ministry i think all of those kind of questions that 
they have a kind of parallel in, in the past um, and we can we can find wisdom there even if it's not directly um, you know directly related um, and then I guess you know really the, the sorts of things that we need medicine for on, the, on, a, on a much deeper level than all of that is is just for in the everyday Christian life how can I be assured that I'm safe and saved in you know in in the love of God how how do I grow day to day as a Christian? Those kind of most most basic needs. How do I how do I keep my eyes on Jesus when there's so much in my life that distracts me and would threaten to knock me off course? Um, there's absolutely ancient medicine available for that. Mm. All all kinds of um, of wisdom and writing that that will um, yeah warm our hearts and lift our eyes. Um, so I yeah I would you know unqualifiedly recommend dig dig into the past and find find it mm. yeah that's great that's great let's um let's say i'm a pastor and um i'm i'm i'm, I'm listening to this podcast or some somehow some maybe through some other way i've, I've heard about theological retrieval um and and i want to dip my toes in the water, as it were. I want to um, explore what, um, what the, the fathers of our faith, the uh, theologians, pastors of the past, how they might, um, might serve me and my church. How do I get started? How would you direct someone who's wanting to begin to, uh, begin to practice theological retrieval within the, the local church? Yeah, I think I want to start actually by just sort of capturing that that thought to say this is a this is a church thing. Um, you know, the church is a Reformation slogan. The church is always being reformed. We we always we're seeking to remain faithful in our time, ne- and you know, never get too comfortable or settled with our theology. As though <clears throat> we have nailed everything down, we're, we're you know we're right, everything's in place and we leave it there but we always want to be uh, submitting ourselves and resubmitting ourselves to God's word and to his revelation to us so I, I think I want to say if you're if you're a pastor and you're thinking of doing this brilliant because it's a church thing um, and yeah as I said earlier it's this is like the communion of saints in action uh, maybe I'd then just pair that with a little caution um, which is a, a danger of um, just just delving into the past to find um, quotes that we can pluck out that will just back up, you know, our own thinking or an argument we've already constructed about something. Um, just to kind of, you know, read through the read through a book of an of an early church father, tear out the pages we really like, and then chuck the rest in the ditch. Um, skim over the material that we don't understand, and just find stuff that. Um, you know, sits sits well with us um, so I want to be caution against doing that which means uh, proceeding with some intellectual care and um, academic accuracy um, it's not so that we we want to be nerdy um, although some of us might want to uh, but it's just that we actually learn um, and that we're not we're not cutting corners mm. and I think very practically that means for a pastor, I would say, keep it simple. 
and don't bite off more than you can chew. Um, be, be realistic with yourself. Um, so an example would be, um, it's, it's very trendy at the moment to get into the theology of Thomas Aquinas, the medieval theologian. And Aquinas is absolutely worth reading. Um, you, you wouldn't and shouldn't agree with everything he says, um, but he's absolutely worth reading. Um, but his work is just huge. It's, it's intimidating at times. It's quite alien. And it, it's probably just not realistic to say, as a local church pastor, I'm you know, going to you know, get on a secondhand books website and buy, you know, buy Aquinas and read through it, it. You probably need to be more realistic than that. If you want to take it seriously um, and really dig deep, I would, I would suggest starting smaller. Um, so if you've if you've never done anything like this, something like Banner of Truth's Puritan Paperbacks series would be a brilliant mm. place to start. It's perhaps more recent and familiar. Small books by by, by Puritans. Uh, maybe go on back to something like Martin Luther. Um, he's got plenty of short, small books and tracts that are worth reading. Um, mentioned um, Athanasius. Um, that, that essay of C.S. Lewis is intro introducing a short book of Athanasius called On the Incarnation. Um, there's plenty of, of small, accessible, um, not too demanding books that will really pack a punch and I think immediately give you some benefit in pastoral ministry. Mm. Um, there's plenty that, that will do that without you having to, you know, sort of try and do a PhD part-time, basically. Um, I think I would say as well... Um, reading um reading is a bit like a muscle um that the capacity um grows with use and uh, i think reading older material is the same um it, it it can be at first quite unfamiliar and unnatural um, but over time the language and the structure of arguments and the various contexts will become more familiar more natural over time um, but it's like a muscle which takes training so uh, like you know like in the gym don't rush it pay attention to form or you, you know you'll hurt yourself <laughs> you'll get frustrated right. but start small and um, be realistic and I think as Lewis suggests in his little essay soon it might be that your ratio of older books to newer books might shift and that could be hugely healthy um, so th I think that would be that would be my my advice on on how to begin. Yeah, that's great. That's great. We we always love to end our episodes with recommendations. So I've heard you um, suggest Puritan paperbacks. I, I've, I've heard you say on the Incarnation by Athanasius, uh, maybe one of Luther's shorter works. Uh, any other books or resources that you might recommend? just around theological retrieval? Yeah. You know, I've just, I've just thought actually that um, one, one thing that might be worth considering is um, in, in the 20th century, Karl Barth, one of the most important theologians of the 20th century, he, he um, having sort of started out in theology, he decided to sit down and devote his thirties, um, you know, a whole, whole time of his life to historical theology and it might be worth um, for some people thinking of something like that to say I, I want to set aside a significant period of time and maybe just maybe just choose to get to know one 
historical author and read as much of them as I can spend time with that person become become their friend and have that shape me yeah um that might be a really good thing to do um and so in a way what I'm saying there is um get get to the texts get to the to, to the um to the, the real stuff um Cyril is a good example of this who we've spoken about already there is a a kind of textbook and classroom caricature of Cyril that's been around for a couple of hundred years which is completely inaccurate um, but it stuck around and it would probably tend to put most people off reading him um, but you, you can push past all of that if you just get to the actual text yourself mm. and you find the treasure that's there so in some ways I would say get get to the real stuff but i think there are some helps as well there's two books that i i think i would uh, i would recommend um just just to sort of be, begin in this in this area um the first i probably i probably would be in trouble if i didn't recommend a book by by, by michael reeves um <laughs> I, I guess some people will know this it's called introducing major theologians and he just covers um a, a whole crop of, of theologians right from the the early church through to today influential names at um, like key turning points of church history and he helps you to to get their context to know what they're trying to do and importantly it, it is designed to be a kind of companion to picking up these people and reading them for yourself so every chapter he, he gives you a bit of who the theologian is and overview of their thought and then recommends places to um, to delve in to, mm. to primary sources so i think that's that's really a really good place to start introducing major theologians. Um, well, then maybe the book that um, has particularly sparked this discussion um, in the last couple of years is, is by Gavin Ortland. Um, it's called Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. He, he has a, a kind of um, an argument there and some case studies about why and how to, to do this. Um, mm. it's, a, it's a book that sort of um, interacts with with scholarship but it's designed for a, a, a popular but thinking audience and so mm. and for some people that would be a, that would be a, a, a good book to to have a look at yeah wonderful we will make sure to have um, links to these sources on the podcast page um, Dan thanks so much for giving us some of your time being with us here on the Reformation Fellowship podcast no pleasure it's great to be with you Justin yeah, it's been great. And to our, our listeners, our, though our time is up, we want to thank you again for joining us and the Reformation Fellowship. We would love to stay in touch with you. The best way to do that would be to head over to reffellowship.org. That is R-E-F-fellowship.org. Sign up for our newsletter. We'll be able to keep you updated on upcoming events, upcoming resources, upcoming gatherings, etc. Thank you again for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. God bless.